Good morning, Short Church. Good to see you all. We are all, every single one of us, products and, and continually being shaped by the patterns that we engage in. We've been taking a look at, throughout the summer, as part of our Finally Alive series, some of the patterns and, and the rhythms and the disciplines that we see Jesus engaging in and, and his disciples engaging in for this goal of having our character formed into the character of Christ. I want to put a verse up on the screen um, for us to look at. I'll read it though. Um, 1 Timothy, it says this, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. This is our goal. We've been examining the disciplines in order for us um, to be able to engage and train. It says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life, but also the life to come. Now this word here, training, it's the Greek word gymnasia. Gymnasia, um, it's where we get the word gymnasium from. The gymnasium is where though we, we perform a skill or discipline. The gymnasia is the act of practicing and developing these skills or these disciplines. So the, this verse, 1 Timothy, it's telling us to gymnasia ourselves for the purpose of godliness. If you've ever been to a modern gymnasium, which we call the gym, you know that they all have one unifying feature. One thing every gym in the world has, somebody yell it out. Sweat? No, a mirror. Every gym in the world has a mirror in it. And there's a few reasons for this. One, um, it enables us to be able to stare at people without looking directly at them. We can be a little more subtle. Um, they're great for full-length selfies. I was going to pull a couple of photos from Jordan's Instagram. Um, he's rocking it. He knows how to use them. I'm kidding. But many, many features for a mirror. Ultimately, it's so that you can examine your own form in it. So you can see what you're doing, you can see the exercise and see if you're doing it correctly. Also, maybe if you're a little less experienced, you can look over at the person who actually paid for the physical trainer. You go like, what are they doing? And just steal their patterns. <clears throat> this is what we're gonna do this morning. Uh, we're gonna look at the word and we're gonna examine the patterns of Jesus. We're gonna take a look at, at our own rhythms and we're gonna try to line them up with Christ. Second Timothy, 3.16 and 17, it says, All scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so this morning, we're going to open the word of God. We're going to use it like a mirror to see how Jesus instructed his disciples to pray, to see how Jesus himself engaged with the discipline of prayer, to see how prayer helps form the character of Christ in us. Now, this, this might be a new understanding of prayer for some. I'm excited to get into this. How is prayer itself a function that cultivates the character of Christ in us? And then lastly, we're going to take a look at how Jesus commands us to pray. With that said, let me pray and we will get going. Father, thank you um, that we get to come before you. Thank you for this congregation of people. Thank you for the beautiful city we get to live in. Thank you that you're a God who intervenes in human lives. You're a God who speaks. You're a God who instructs. 
You're not a God who leaves us on our own to white knuckle effort our way to you. You came down to us. And you're, you're a God who has promised that your character would come into us and begin to overtake us and consume us as we engage with what your Holy Spirit's doing in us. And so I just pray as your people who are desperate, desperate to, to have that deep level relationship with you and satisfaction in you, that you would use what I've prepared, what you've put on my heart to bless us, to feed us, to nourish us, to strengthen us, to equip us as we all train for godliness and to help conform the image of Christ in us. So I'm desperate for you, Holy Spirit, to infuse what I've prepared. And so I, I just pray this and commit this in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> now to begin with, um, because we're such a diverse crowd and we're, we're maybe all at different places in our discipleship to Jesus... Before we get to this idea of prayer as a discipline, I want to look at what prayer is. Now, for many in the room, I just acknowledge you're new to this. Welcome. Prayer might be a foreign concept. For some of you, um, you're coming from different faith backgrounds, and prayer has a, has a completely different meaning or understanding there. And so um, I just want to take a look at how should we understand prayer through a Christian lens. This summer, I got to take a team to Tanzania, and as part of their, their training, um, I took our team to a number of different temples to just understand some different worldviews and cultures. So we visited um, a Buddhist temple, a Sikh temple. We, we went to an Islamic mosque and a Hindu place of worship. I've spent time in most of these cultures as it will, um, but for a Hindu, prayer, um, prayer is probably to be understood as kind of the invocation of any number of the 30 million gods within Hinduism um, to grant a, a request to fulfill any number of needs that we might bring before them. Um, or it could be understood um, as, as a song. All of um, Hindu prayers are in fact um, centered around the idea of this primal word, om. And th so most of their prayers will be in song form. If you're familiar with the song Across the Universe, by the Beatles? Anyone? Remember, there's that one section in the song where they go, Jai Garu Deva. That's actually a Hindu prayer. That's a Hindu prayer, and it's meant to lull the mind into a higher state of consciousness. Don't know that that happened for any Beatles fans, um, but that's what it's trying to do. For the Sikh, for the, for the, is, um, the Muslim Prayer is a little bit more of a, just a, a recited, verbatim, one-way, obligatory act of obedience. Something said multiple times a day. For Buddhists, though you will see many Buddhists prayer, um, pray, Buddhism doesn't have at its core the concept of prayer or a, really a justification for prayer. I've spent a lot of time in Buddhist cultures. You'll see people light incense and go stand in front of a Buddha statue. I've even went up to some people at the Buddhist temple in Richmond and said, like, can you explain to me what you're doing? Um, there's no God in Buddhism. Buddhism says that all of reality is an illusion. So at its core, any prayer said in Buddhism is just a prayer to yourself. Uh, but you'll see lots of Buddhists praying. Our city, though, 60% of which would say that they adhere to no religion, still holds concepts of prayer. You hear people use language like, I'm praying the Canucks are going to win this year. 
not gonna happen. Don't wanna burst your bubble. Um, I'm off the bandwagon for a few years. Um, or, you know, I'm praying I'll win the lotto, whatever it is. There's this language, this concept of prayer. Um, some of that's a newer understanding, but you will, see it, um, you will see it come up in the dictionary even now, just this concept of a, a desire or a wish, kind of meaning what prayer is. What we're seeing is that while prayer might universally exist, it's not universally understood the same way. What we're, we're seeing as well is that Christians aren't the only ones who are praying. So how should the Christian understand prayer? I say there's three unique features to Christian prayer. One is that it's spoken to God. It's spoken to God, not ourselves. It's, it's also heard by God. And then a unique feature within Christian prayer is that God communicates in return. God communicates in return. Um, lots that could be said about prayer, um, but we're not going to be able to get to everything this morning, but I really want us to understand just this Christian concept of prayer is one of communication and conversation with God. The Lexham Bible Dictionary, it actually defines prayer as communication with God. That may include petition, entreaty, supplication, thanksgiving, praise, hymns, lament, but at its core, it's conversation with God. And if you trace this idea of prayer back from the New Testament to the Old, which I spent a whole day doing this week, fantastic little study if you're looking for something to kind of riff off on your own this week. I'd commend it. It's interesting. But what I found, 650 prayers in the Bible. 650 prayers listed in the Bible. And if the definition of prayer is communication with God, then the very first place we see prayer taking place is in the garden with God walking and talking with Adam and Eve. But then if you trace it down from the garden back through Jewish history, you see that it it kind of, it becomes something different so that at the point of Jesus, prayer has become something that by most is said three times a day. It's a recited prayer and it's more obligatory. It might kind of take some deviations off of that, but at its core, this is how we see it practiced. What God meant to be a natural outflowing of a relationship morphed to become a cold religious duty. For many of us, maybe that's what our prayer lives looks like. Maybe that's how we would describe our prayer. Might pray, they're short, mechanical, always at the same time. Thanks for food. Give me safe commute to work today. Bless my kids as they go to sleep. Send angels to guard over my home. Whatever it is for you. It's this couple points in the day where we say the same exact prayer. Or but conversely, maybe you're Prayer life is just reactionary prayer. Like, oh my gosh, this is going on. I'm sick, would you heal me? Please let me get the raise. Please help me get the exams. Both uses of prayer. But what should our prayers look like? What should our prayers look like? If I asked for a quick show of hands, I won't. but I don't think anyone would be able to say that our prayer life is as healthy and vibrant as we would like it or where it's where we would want it to be. For some, for some maybe we're unsure where to begin. We don't even know how to do it. Uh, maybe we're confused amidst the variety of understandings and practices and we're confused how to even engage in prayer. You are in good company if you're wondering any of this. <laughs> 
because uh, Jesus' disciples were wondering the same thing. I want to invite you, um, turn to Luke 11. We're going to go there for a couple minutes. Luke 11, verse 1. For those who don't have a Bible, you can literally just Google Luke 11, colon 1, and it'll pull up. But we have it up on the screen as well, I believe. <clears throat> Luke 11, verse 1. It says, um, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, the disciples, they approach Jesus, they ask him how to pray, because they would have been seeing a variety of different expressions. The Pharisees praying one way, John's taught his disciples to pray another way, maybe the Sadducees or some different religious sects praying another way. And so they're going, how is it that we are supposed to pray? They approach their rabbi, Jesus, their, just means their teacher, Jesus, and they say, how should we pray? And what proceeds is Jesus' instructions on how a follower or a disciple of his should pray. He answers them, verse 2, when you pray, which, I mean, he's assuming they would be praying. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This probably sounds familiar, but a little different to some. If you were, as a child, taught the Lord's Prayer. Um, you probably learned it from Matthew, so I want to invite you to just take a hang to, your, to the left in your Bible. Go to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 5. That's where you see the Lord's Prayer um, as you probably learned it, if you learned it as a child. I mean, I learned that, um, prayed it for years as a child, just the same thing. I've taught it to my daughters. Um, many of you probably know that as well. That's from Matthew 6. So hang over there, and I'll, we'll read it there, because I think it can be helpful to see the two side by side. I'm in Zechariah. Bigger, bigger letters in my Bible. Matthew 6, verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door. Pray to the Father who's in secret, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap, heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now what Jesus is not doing here is switching a collection of prayers that the Pharisees would have been praying three times a day for a new prayer to be said verbatim. Um, I think what we're seeing going on here is Jesus presenting a format or a model for prayer. A framework a structure that we should follow in our own prayers. And so I want to show you um, what I think to be five elements going on in the Lord's Prayer here. Five elements, they're up on the screen. Adoration being the first, consecration, supplication, intercession, and then protection and intervention. If those don't make sense to you right now, we'll go through these. They're, they're going to make sense by the end. Um, 
But there's a reason that Jesus laid the prayer out in this particular order, and it's not because it makes a neat acronym. AXIP, um, not easy to remember, makes no sense at all. It's not even another word. Um, He's laid this out intentionally, though, because there's a flow and there's a format that's taking place in here. And my hope is that when we leave, we have a clearer understanding of how this relates to this particular pattern actually lends itself to spiritual formation in ourselves. That this prayer and the structure and the pattern that it takes is actually what makes prayer a discipline. Each element of it is purposefully placed. And there's a movement beginning with our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now notice, it doesn't open with a request. Though any number of things might have driven them to prayer, it's not front-loaded with a request. Prayer is to begin with recognition and contemplation and adoration of God, which is um, maybe contrary to how some of us might begin our prayer, but there's something important here. Now, the reason we begin with adoration and praise of God is not to butter him up so that we can like kind of front load some praise so that he'll be more likely to grant our requests. This, this isn't groveling. It's not what's taking place. This is a correct posturing. I say that because we should never forget that we finite creatures get to talk to God we understand this correctly, this will blow our mind. It should have the impact on us that a dump truck would at full speed. This is perplexing. We get to talk to God. But there's one other thing in this first line that blows me away. Don't miss it. We get to call God Father. We get to call God Father, and this is a a feature completely unique to Christianity, and that's because only the God of the Bible has intervened in human history the way that Jesus has. He sent his son to stand on the scales of justice, tip them fully on our behalf, living the perfect life we couldn't, taking the punishment that we'd incurred on himself, inviting us now simply to get the heck off of the scale. Let him do it for us. And so Jesus took our punishment, but he also gifted us his right standing. He took our guilty title, but he gifted us his, which is a son of the most high God. That's the gospel. Somebody should be saying amen. John 1.12, it says, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We get to call God Father. So we think and pray this first line as we open and structure our prayer this way. This should force us to remember the gospel. We're not coming to you for any other reason than you've died for me. You've stood in my place and you've granted me the ability to come before you. That should blow our mind apart and And really, it should force us to say, holy is your name. Just saying, our Father in heaven should lead us to say, hallowed be thy name. When we understand that, we get to call God Father, holy are you. I'm not holy, you're holy. Jesus commands, we pray this, 
Because by opening our conversation with God in recognition and contemplation, it'll lead to adoration. It ensures that that's on the forefront of our minds, that God's holiness, his love for us, his sacrifice for us, will force us to remember our position before him and who he is. Doing this will prevent penultimate things from becoming ultimate. Only after having begun with adoring God can our tendency and temptation to bring our own kingdoms and dominions before him properly be addressed and put in the rightful place. By beginning with adoration, we purposefully remind ourselves that God does not exist to advance our kingdom, but we exist to advance his. And that leads us right into the second movement of prayer, which is consecration. In this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I debate, you debated using the word surrender, but there's something different about consecration. To consecrate means to surrender or to set apart, whether that's your body or your finances or your career, your spirit, your family, to set it apart for God's exclusive use. That's what we just saw here in the child dedication. Our de- dedication, dedication is consecrating, consecrating these children to the Lord. Your kingdom come is rightly understood a prayer of consecration, setting ourselves apart and the pursuit of our kingdoms for the pursuit of God's. It's a pleading with God to not just bring his future kingdom to earth, but to bring his kingdom to bear in our heart right now. It's a surrender, surrender to the use of God. And it's as we see this, start to see this that we start to see how prayer is formational in our hearts. It's forcing us to put down one thing and put on another. It's a discipline. There's, there's a Hebrew word that I came across this week I'm taking a look at prayer in the Old Testament. This Hebrew word, tefillah, it's used 77 times in the Old Testament. It means to judge or to, to analyze or to self-evaluate to take a look, to introspectively look at what's going on in our hearts. One, one commentator, he described it, um, the word to mean, a labor of awakening the hidden love within the heart until a state of intimate union with God is achieved. So what I want us to see is that prayer isn't just a means to ask God for things. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're examining our own hearts. We're lining it up against the kingdom of God to come and we're realigning it. We're realigning it. It forces us to introspectively look and consecrate ourselves to God. Persisting in this is a discipline. It is a discipline. Adoration, willing and joyful adoration at least, will lead us to consecration, which only then can proceed to our third point, which is supplication. Supplication, bringing our request to God. So the prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. This third movement that Jesus taught, if you're like me, is probably the thing that's filled most of your prayers. Come to God with whatever's weighing on our minds that day, and we should, but there's a place for it. Note its position. We worship him first. Surrender our lives to his will and purpose. And then we present our needs. 
If we've been affected by the first two points, our, our requests won't be things that we want to have to help build our kingdom. They'll be things that we want to build his. Give us this day our daily bread. Is us praying, yes, for immediate felt needs, but it's more. And I'm not saying God doesn't care about our immediate felt needs, because if you take a look at the last nine verses of Matthew 6, are Jesus speaking directly to this and how he cares for our needs. But give us this day is first a prayer for the things that we need for the spiritual work that God has given us and for the spiritual beings that we are. Our prayers are usually, if you're like me, filled with things that our physical body wants, but maybe not the bread that our spiritual man needs. Let me ask us, what are we praying for? What fills the majority of our prayer? What do our prayer requests, as we think about them, maybe reveal about which kingdom we're primarily concerned with? The needs and the requests that we present before God, they will reveal which kingdom we're primarily concerned about. Examine them. Let me say that again. The needs and requests that we present to God will reveal which kingdom we're primarily serving. Could our requests perhaps reveal that we need to double back and spend more time on point one and two? Adoration, consecration. If we're coming to God and, and our requests are all just immediate felt, give me whatever it is, perhaps we haven't properly understood adoration. Perhaps we properly haven't understood what God's accomplished for us in the gospel, in the person of Christ. Perhaps we properly haven't seen the mission that he's given us, so we haven't really consecrated our lives to that purpose. See, this pattern is forcing us through a way of thinking that will posture our hearts correctly. It's forcing us to remember that while we're physical beings, we're also spiritual beings as well. And just as the physical man can't live by bread alone. It also can't live without bread. So too the spiritual man. The spiritual man can't live without being fed. And so what food are we most after? So we examine our prayers. What are we most after? Our, our, our prayer requests will help reveal some of this. Then move, moves on to intercession. Point number four. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This motion of prayer, I think we, I often miss. Um, but it's an important thing. And I, I want us to notice there's a rhythm going on in this prayer. It starts high. It starts high with God in adoration. It comes down, comes down, and, and it moves on to our earthly kingdom. And then it moves internal into us. And now it begins to flow back out. It's starting high, coming down, working in, and then coming out. And it's forcing us into this movement of high to low, high to low. And we can just pray through it and keep cycling through it. Forgive us our debts and our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's, a, it's very cleverly worded, but it's also very intentionally worded. It's, it's saying, forgive me in the same way that I forgive other people is kind of a scary thought. But 
but we know that we're not forgiven based off of how we forgive other people. We're forgiven based off of how Jesus has forgiven us, based off of his works. We're not saved by how we've forgiven, or we would all be in great big trouble if you're anything like me. We're recipients of God's grace through Jesus. And if we're properly beholding that in adoration, then we'll be extending the same grace towards other people that we've received. I think this line is here and it's worded this way because it's making this connection. It wants us to remember we're nothing more than undeserving recipients of grace. It's Matthew 18, if you're familiar with that chunk of scripture, the, un, the un, um, unforgiving servant. We can't pray this if we're not bewildered by the grace of God towards us. And as we pray it and as we realize, like, forgive me as I've forgiven other people, and we remember that person we haven't forgiven, drives us right back to adoration, the gospel, consecration, drives us back through the rhythm. It's cultivating the character of Christ in us. It's unearthing the things that are contrary to the gospel in us. This model of prayer that Jesus taught is cultivating and and forming the character of Christ in us. Lastly, last movement of this is um, then towards protection and intervention. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Depending on the version you learned, my wife and I debate about which is right. Then goes on to in the correct version, for yours is the kingdom and all the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Who's with me? A couple of you. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so just as some of us might have a, like a propensity or tendency to fill our, our, our whole prayers with requests, some of us, we're just bringing the things we're up against. We're bringing everything that we, we need protection from. But notice, the prayer isn't initiated with a plea for deliverance from evil. It concludes with it. There is a very, very real force of evil in the world that we're up against. The scripture says that we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he could devour. We have an enemy. And the Bible says it's his, he's made it his full-time assignment to try to get the, something else in the place of adoration in our lives. This is his task. Jesus doesn't open this model of prayer up with this because if we begin with adoration, it falls to the bottom place. The way to resist and fight the enemy is through having a heart enamored by and satisfied in God. The first four movements of the prayer actually prepare us for this. See this? So if we're stumbling here, it should just drive us right back to the beginning again. I think this is why the scriptures say pray without ceasing. Because when we see this model, we understand that it's just a motion that we're continually going through in our hearts. When we get hung up here, go back to the top. Work ourselves back through. Get bewildered at the scandal that is the gospel and come back down through. When you get hung up here, double back again until you get through it. Keep correcting our hearts. Keep redirecting our hearts to grace. And all these other things will change. Without a high view of God... We won't worship like we should. We'll turn to the adoration of other things. 
without a high view of God, we won't set ourselves apart for his kingdom service, but we'll set God aside so we can serve our own. Without a high view of God, we won't even acknowledge an enemy, much less call out to God for protection and intervention. See, this is all pointing us back to how high of a view of God do we have? I said at the beginning, we were going to take a look at how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, but then we were going to move on to talk about how we see Jesus praying, how we see Jesus engaged with this discipline. Um, the New Testament records 25 instances of Jesus' praying, or Jesus' prayers, pardon me. Um, 25 times we see him running off to pray. In, in Luke 5.16, we read that he would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. He was doing it all the time. Luke 6.2, it said he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night there in prayer. Prayer is a place Jesus would frequent and it's a place he would linger in. But if you're like me, you might wonder, why does Jesus need to pray? If Jesus is God, as we believe and teach, why does he need to pray? What does Jesus pray? encourage you, go take a look in the New Testament. Um, don't take my word for it. Um, there's lots of scriptures that tell us this story. What we know is when Jesus, the eternal son of God, left his throne in heaven, he maintained his God nature, but he also took on flesh. He also took on a human nature. And so he experienced temptations. He experienced weariness. His body recoiled from pain, just like ours does. Hebrews 5.8, it says Jesus prayed to learn and exercise obedience. It says that, well, he didn't say that he prayed. It says that he had to learn and exercise obedience, that he disciplined himself in order to learn. And there's that word again, exercise, gymnasia, train, obedience. He was training his flesh nature to be obedient to the spirit nature. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Know that scripture, I reversed that. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're training our flesh nature to align with what our spirit, the new spirit God has put in us, is willing to do. Jesus did this, so should, or so too should we. But what does Jesus pray? If you want to turn with me, um, it's not on the screen, but Matthew 26. That's why Jesus prayed, but what does he pray? Matthew 26. Verse 36, right before he's about to be crucified, he of course knows this because he's God and he's, he knew it. He said he went to a place called Gethsemane. One of the places Jesus would retreat to Eremos. If you were with us last week, one of his favorite places. Um, he went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. Here's what he prayed. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Notice in that. Notice the pattern Jesus engages in in prayer. How does he begin? My father. 
begins with adoration, remembering the supremacy of God over all things. My father. Then he surrenders to the father's will. He consecrates himself. Not my will, but yours. And then he presents his fears and sorrows, his supplication. He's following the same pattern. He's praying for what's weighing on his heart. He's allowing the situations that come up just from everyday life, but also that God unearths in us through silence and solitude or um, fasting and frugality. As these things are unearthed, he's bringing them forward in prayer. He's turning up the soil of his heart with prayer. He's practicing himself the way he commanded us to. goes on, verse 40. And he came to the disciples who he just said, watch with me. And he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? And then he says this, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. So we've said, we wanted to take a look at what prayer is, wanted to see how Jesus practiced prayer. I want to know why did Jesus pray? What did Jesus pray? And now what does he command us? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now this is directly spoken to the disciples, but if you flip with me over to Luke 21. Luke 21, um, is this up on the screen? Perfect. Okay, Luke 21, 34 to 36 speaking about the end times, the trouble that would come on the earth, how he would one day return. He commands all people this, Luke 21, verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon on all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, watch and pray. And he speaks that to his disciples and he speaks that to us as well. Church, watch and pray. We're to be watchful and praying. This word watchful, generally used um, in context of a night watchman. So a day guard, you could see trouble coming from a long, a long ways away. This word watch, though, is implying there's trouble that we don't know is coming. Like a night watchman, all of a sudden, just comes out of the dark. So you need to be extra vigilant, extra on guard, because it's coming. And he says, this is coming, be watchful. Be watchful and pray. Be watchful, and as it comes, go to prayer. Be watchful for all the ways the enemy is going to be coming for our soul and trying to put something else in the place of adoration and pray. Be watchful for all the other things that take, where you start to front load your prayers with just requests, treating God like the cosmic vending machine. Pray. Go back to this format of prayer. Keep driving yourself there because it's going to cultivate the character of Christ in us. It's going to unearth the things in our hearts that have taken like penultimate things that have become ultimate things. It's going to force Christ back to that first position. Church, be watchful and pray. Keep going back through this rhythm of adoration, consecration, supplication, intersection, or intercession, and then prayers of protection. We have a very real enemy out for our soul who wants something else in the place of Christ in our hearts. Keep running through this. Live this. 
ceaselessly be existing in this rhythm and this state of prayer. Pray in conjunction with fasting. It will unearth things. As we starve ourselves from physical food, the things that we tend to satisfy ourselves with will come to the surface and we can drive it back and say, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need to be people, if we're going to be mature spiritual believers, mature disciples of Christ, people who have hidden manna, people have food that we can feast on. Use prayer in conjunction with silence and solitude. It will also help to reveal the things in your heart. Now, if you've never ever prayed before, could I commend to you just this prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6? The Lord's Prayer as it's typically known. Start by learning this prayer, but then add to it. Make this part of your prayer rhythm. If you've been a believer or follower of Christ for years, decades, could I commend this as a format for prayer? Now, I'm not saying you need to say it verbatim, but take it and then riff off of it. Our Father... Who, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, then go, just adore him for a while. Use it as a format and just keep cycling through it. Could I urge us all just to find a way to engage with prayer more? Think about it and find a way to engage just a little more than you have been. Let me encourage you to do a lot more than you have been. But I think that there's something in this prayer that, as we see it, will excite us. And it should give us hope because it shows us that the character of Christ and the pattern of prayer has a purpose. And God's doing something in the middle of it. I wanna, I've been so encouraged by this series. I just love seeing um, so many get excited about these disciplines and see it as a way of partnering with the Holy Spirit's already up to. We have a victorious God who hasn't abandoned us or left us alone. He's right here. He's at work in us, and he calls us to partner with him. And we have the promise the gates of hell won't prevail against his church. No weapon fashioned against us will stand. And where you're presently at is not where God wants to lead you. There's a level of satisfaction. There's a level of joy and delight further than we've ever experienced. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's more of the life eternal, of the abundant life, of that divine nature that 2 Peter says we're to be partakers of than you've presently enjoyed? I guarantee you there is. And I would call us as a church to just engage with these disciplines as a way of going just a little bit more. And just call us, commend us, charge us this week, go further engage more, re-examine the disciplines that you've been engaging in and see what God would do. See how he wouldn't meet you as you purposefully engage. As the band comes forward, I want to close this in a word of prayer and then we'll talk about how we're going to respond. Oh, Father in heaven, you're glorious. Great is your name. Great is your name. You came down and rescued and redeemed us purchased us back, freed us from slavery and gave us a seat at your table. We get to call you children. Holy are you. Holy are you. All praise and glory back to you. We have nothing to bring. We stand and we, 
We stand in uh, your presence only because of Christ. So we return all praise, praise back to you and we pray your kingdom come. Yes, here in Vancouver. Yes, on the earth. We, we join along with the saints in Revelation and pray, come Lord Jesus, come. But would you come and overtake our lives, this, the kingdom soil of our hearts. Bring your kingdom here. Have your will done in us. We pray for our daily bread and not just the food. We, most of us have way too much of that, Father, but we have not enjoyed enough of the food that you give us that feeds our spirit. I pray you'd just show us the hunger that we've been ignoring. Meet us in the word that we would feast on you and find our satisfaction in you. Forgive our debts and all the ways we live our lives out like we're for this earth, that we forget all that you've done for us. We pray you forgive our debts and that we would be the type of people that can pray as we forgive our debtors, that we'd be so enamored by your forgiveness of us that forgiveness would ooze out of us. We just acknowledge our frailty and our need, and I pray on behalf of this body, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one who'd love to have his way in our hearts. Forgive us for the ways that we've been allowing him to have his way in our heart. We pray, lead us not into temptation. Lord, come deliver us from evil. I pray you'd meet with us as we engage in the disciplines, that you'd further cultivate the joy of the Lord in our hearts. Would we be people known for that? Would you use us to make you known to others with the delight and satisfaction that we find in you? Draw hundreds and thousands more on the shore, we pray, Jesus. Amen.